0: This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact?
1: The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster.
2: Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Did you know Nissan EVs have traveled 8 billion miles? Just a quick trip to Pluto and back. And what did we learn along the way? Well, that an EV can take on the world, like the Nissan LEAF. It can move racing forward and take your breath away like the all-new Nissan Aria. We learned to make EVs that electrify. 8 billion miles driven by LEAF owners globally since 2010. Aria not yet available for purchase. Expected availability late fall. Subject to change.
0: Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale.
1: But he's our special guest, author Neil Gaiman. Johnny's in the basement, mixing up the medicine. I'm on the pavement, thinking about the government. The man in the trench coat, badge out, laid off, says he's got a bad cough, wants to get it paid off. Look out, kid, it's something you did. God knows when, but you're doing it again. You better duck down the alleyway looking for a new friend. The man in the coonskin cap in the big pen wants $11 bills. You only got 10 Maggie comes fleet foot, face full of black soot, talking that the heat put plants on the bed, but the phone's tapped anyway. Maggie says that many say they must bust in early May. Orders from the DA. Look out, kid. Don't matter what you did. Walk on your tiptoes. Don't try no-dos. Better stay away from those that carry round a fire hose. Keep a clean nose. Watch the plain clothes. You don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. Get sick. Get well. Hang around an inkwell. Ring bell. Hard to tell if anything is gonna sell. Try hard. Get barred. Get back. Write braille. Get jailed. Jump bail. Join the army if you fail. Look out, kid. You're gonna get hit. But users, cheaters, six-time losers, hang around the theatres. Girl by the whirlpool looking for a new fool. Don't follow leaders. Watch the parking meters. Ah, get born, keep warm. Short pants, romance, learn to dance. Get dressed, get blessed, try to be a success. Please her, please him, buy gifts. Don't steal, don't lift. 20 years of schooling and they put you on the day shift. Look out, kid, they keep it all hid. Better jump down a manhole, light yourself a candle. Don't wear sandals, try to avoid the scandals. Don't want to be a bum, you better chew gum. The pump don't work because the vandals took the handles. Neil. Neil. Uh, why did you choose that to start with? Um, chose it for a number of reasons. I, I remember falling in love with I'd heard it many times, but didn't actually fall in love with it until somewhere around 1987. I was watching the film Penn and Teller Get Killed, and Penn uses it as a warm-up you know, he's warming up to go on and he just starts reciting it. Um, And I was like, that is actually beautiful. And realizing how much I loved that piece. And then it sort of become iconic for me in a number of ways. um, Because, as we will find out during the course of this podcast of where I live and the Dylan influences on my life, Um, bringing it all back home has become peculiarly central to my life, and bits of that creep into my life. And, of course, I'm living out in Woodstock in uh, upstate New York. Not very far upstate New York. When you say upstate New York, the people who really live upstate New York get get grumpy with you. Um, (laughs) but uh, But living locally... Where people lived and worked with Dylan and stuff, and you'll be humming something or something, and you know, pump don't work because the vandals got the handle. I remember talking to somebody a few months ago, and they said, "Oh yeah, you know that was that was the handle at Bard." I said, "What?" They said, "Well, there was a water pump at Bard, and uh, the vandals took the handle, and the pump didn't work, and you couldn't <laughs> so pump it was water." So as
0: simple as that. It's it's literal,
1: it's, which uh, is uh, you go, shocking. Oh. Well, you know, a lot of that feels gloriously literal. You've got somebody with a, an amazing understanding of language and for spoken word and with a magpie mind. Mm. I mean, everything I've read about Dylan as a lyricist and his willingness to steal... In the best sense of, you know, find a line in a book that he likes with a rhythm Mm. and he'll just go in there and, you know, nip and tuck and there it is in a song. Um, Makes complete sense. So if I heard a lie, if I was putting a song like that, I can absolutely see Pump Don't Work because the vandal's got the handle. Mm. It's funny, when you were reciting the whole thing, you don't often hear the whole thing
0: recited. I... A working-class hero jumped into my head, and I thought, oh, my God, he just... I had no idea, but it seems like it's a huge rip-off of uh,
1: I uh, think there is that. Def- uh, definitely, and also, it it's only when you stop and you read it. Uh, you know, when you listen to it, it is just a tour de force. It's a Gilbert and Sullivan mm, song. Mm, mm. Um Just a footnote, you guys were mentioning to me where it was film that Mm. video which i'd always assumed was new york Mm. and was astonished to realize that it was actually shot you know a few hundred feet from the statues of gilbert and sullivan behind the savoy (laughs) (laughs) yeah which uh seems very appropriate
3: it looks alarmingly similar
1: that the last time i was in that alley
3: actually you know similar now yeah yeah yeah. it's really there's not much has happened i mean so some things don't age and some
1: things don't change and you know well speaking of which Cut to your house, <laughs> your house in
0: Woodstock. How, so, how, you know, tell us about it. How you how you came to be living there? It's
1: it's an it's it's fun. Um, so about six or seven years ago, my wife said, "Let's get a house in Hudson, New York." I like Hudson. I have friends. Hudson is beautiful. Let's go find a place there, and I uh, hopped into a car with a realtor in Hudson, New York, and she drove me to places that I didn't much like. And we saw a lot of places that I didn't much like. And then I got back in the car, and she said, you know, I want to show you a place. She said, and it's 45 minutes from where you want to be, and it costs three times as much as you're willing to spend. And I think it's what you're looking for. And... And she drove me out to a house um in, in Woodstock, on the edge of a hamlet called Bearsville, which is the next tiny teeny town over. And I fell in love with the house. I saw that and, and the house is sort of it, it's not fancy, which I think was one of the things that I fell in love with. We'd been living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in a rented house that had once belonged Uh, To J.K. Galbraith, the famous economist, and still belonged to his family, and it was a giant sort of weird mansion, manor house, and I hated it. I felt, you know, whenever Amanda was gone, I felt like, why am I a one human being in a house with rooms that I will never even go in? And Mm. this place, so. And I thought, well, I'm going to be on my own. We need somewhere big enough for my entire family to descend at Thanksgiving and so on and so forth. But also, and for Amanda to come back with her entire tour crew. But by the same token, I never want to feel lonely if I'm there on my own. So A home. I need a home. And this is a weird and lovely, you know, old sort of faux farmhouse It was built in about 1913, but to look as if it had been built 200 years earlier as a sort of a Dutch farmhouse-style place, um, built by a lawyer whose name I have forgotten, but he had become rich out in Denver, writing a two-volume book on copyright law, (laughs) and had come out to Woodstock and built this place. And then it was bought from him, in the early 30s in about 1933 by a cartoonist and which i loved a guy who did newspaper cartoons and um, he owned it until he died in 1962 and in 1963 or the end of 62 his widow sold the house Um, his name was john strebel And uh, he was a wonderful cartoonist. And his widow sold the house to Albert Grossman. And uh, any Dylanologist (laughs) has already figured out that I've been talking about the Grossman house. uh, But I thought I'd lead to it in a sort of slow way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when I went out to see the house, the person selling me the house was Sally Grossman best known in Dylan circles, probably as the lady in the red dress on the cover of Bring It All Back Home. And I walked into the house, and there is the fireplace on the cover of Bring It All Back Home, which I recognized. You know, everything, pretty much everything in the Bring It All Back Home cover was still somewhere in the house. Is the chaise longue still in front of the fireplace? The chaise longue was never in front of the fireplace Ah, because it doesn't actually make sense if they had moved that chaise longue (laughs) in front of that fireplace. Because if you think about it, it's not a very good place to (laughs) put, you know, you burn the back of the chaise longue in front of it. But the, uh, the chaise longue, which was part of the chaise longue and about 12 chairs were gifts to Sally at her wedding from the Mary of Peter Paul and Mary, who were also, of course, managed. By Albert, and who originally he found Bob, figuring he was going to be writing songs for Peter Paul and Mary. So, mm. um, and yes, we still have it. It's it's somewhat damaged by cats over the years, but how fitting? It, but I've, I'm so well, very appropriate. And I'm faintly waiting for some day somebody to come to me and say, you know, this museum needs that chair to mm. be in that that chaise long to be in their collection of Bob Deliniana And I will finally part with with the chaise longue. Was was Sally there when you
0: uh, came to look at the house? Sure. To show you around?
1: Absolutely. Uh, Tell us something about her. Sally is a very, very smart businesswoman who was a young, very young waitress in um, one of Albert's cafes, Albert had a sort of folk cafe in Greenwich Village when he moved from Chicago to New York. And she met, married Albert. Um, They actually married in the grounds of the Bearsville house. Mm. And Albert died in 86 on Concord, I believe. In the way of these things, one of the Woodstock Woodstock locals... are all filled with arcana. And you're never actually sure how much of their arcana Mm. is true and how much of it is hand-me-down. So I've had at least one Woodstock local say, yeah, Albert died on the plane. You know, you know he was poisoned. (laughs) And I'm like, I find this very difficult to create. (laughs) Um, But Albert Albert died in 86, and uh, Sally took over and uh, Bearsville Studios, and she ran... Bearsville Studios, which Albert had built, the band recorded there, didn't they? Everybody yeah, recorded yeah. there. Um, I mean, the the if you actually look at the you go to the the Wikipedia page for Bearsville Studios, and essentially every great album of the '90s uh, was recorded there. Mm. And in fact, it's still you know it is still missed and regretted. A couple of years ago, I got an email out of the blue. From some of the guys in king crimson who had heard that i had the grossman house and who assumed that i had also owned bearsville studios mm. and they were writing to say could we come and use it as our practice studio is there any way because it is it, it had the best acoustics of any place that we've ever mm. been mm. and i had to say no 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 that is way up the hill and owned by a mysterious hoarder mm. and is a has been condemned by the city and it's not a good thing speaking of sally did
0: i think when we met before you told me that sally had a, a theory about the accident or something about time and bob well, leaving and coming
1: sally had uh, sally you know I mean, I mean in that way that you talk to people about theories and what happened mm. and um and sally said well she said bear in mind that as the wife of bob's manager I wasn't going to be privy to a lot of information because I would have told Albert, she said. But I was on the phone. I just started a phone call when Bob went off on his bike and I was not done with that phone call when they came back and said that Bob had been injured. So he didn't get very far, you know, from the house. Um, He made it maybe a mile away, she said, and then he moved in with and again this is one of those things where it's all the mysterious the mysteries of woodstock time because you're never really sure whether people are playing with you or whatever um but sally said she said you know put it this way she said bob and his wife after his accident moved in with the town pharmacist for three or four months and if i were going to Go cold turkey. Mm. I would be doing it. I would not have exactly. gone on tour. I would have taken three months off and gone to live with a town pharmacist and gone cold turkey. And the truth of, of the matter is, as all of these things are up for infinite conjecture. Yeah, we're not going to solve it on this particular. Podcast. Nor should we. I mean, no, no, exactly. even, if, even if we knew, we shouldn't. I, uh, you know, I there are, there are so many stories where, you know, I'll hear one side of things living where I live and then hear another, and I love the fact that what I'm hearing is always endlessly modified by people who go, well, yeah, but, or, Mm -hmm. well, no, and. And then there are, you know, weird and wonderful parts of Dylan Law, like My Barn, in which, at least according to legend, during the long period of... uh, Because um, Albert Grossman and Bob Dylan were mutually suing each other from some point in, I think, the 70s until Albert died, and it didn't actually wind up getting settled. You know, the the legal case got wrapped up by Sally. Oh, really? I didn't know that. I thought they'd settled it sometime in the 70s. No, there were... um, there was, there was legal stuff going on for a very, very long time mm. between the two of them over, again, my understanding of this is over the fact that when Albert got Bob out of his first contract and because he'd been under 18 when he signed it and took Bob to a music publisher who took Bob on and he signed him up. And Albert was getting 50% as Bob's manager of every penny that came in from the publisher. And Bob did not know that Albert already had a deal with the music publisher where he would get 50% of anybody he brought into them. So Albert was making more on any Dylan song than Bob would have been making. Yeah, And I think that was a lot of what, the case was about mm-hmm. I, I mean i mean i mean it's a legal case so i'm sure yeah. it you know when it once it was settled it meant that a lot of the uh, you know any material that sally had which i believe was an awful lot of basement style tapes and things were allowed out of my barn so that would have been the
3: 90s and, and just going back to the house other than the front room and the fabled mantelpiece are there any other rooms in the house that are of special significance to, to the Dylan narrative?
1: So what you have to remember about young, young Bob is when Albert and Sally moved into the house, Bob didn't have a place to live mm. up there. So if he was up in Woodstock, if he was between tours or whatever, that was where he was living. And there's a book that came out a couple of years ago called i think small town talk by barney hoskins yeah yep and according so according to that bob was originally in the main house Mm -hmm. and according to house legend that i've been told and and then he moved next door and he moved into the space that is now amanda's studio and and workroom next door which has a mezzanine floor and it's a lovely little old sort of converted barn it's the kind of converted barn that was probably never a barn to begin with Mm -hmm. it was an art studio to begin with or Mm -hmm. or something but he moved next door onto the mezzanine which is where he lived and according to house law i have been told it was mostly because he was composing songs at three o'clock in the morning and nobody else could sleep right and it's that point where you you know imagining bob being told to stop composing hey mr tambourine man at three o'clock in the morning bob we're all sick of you please for fuck's sake (laughs) so he uh he moved next door where you can't be heard if you're up playing the guitar and that was where he was having his relationship with both sarah lowndes and joan baez and where the famous diamond earrings incident would have happened it's a, it, it is in the small-town talk book that, uh, and I believe made it into a Joan Baez song, that uh, Joan left her diamond earrings by the bed at a time when Bob was seeing both of them, unbeknownst to either of the other ones. And uh, when Sarah picked up the diamond earrings from behind the bed and said, Bob, what are these? He said, they are a gift for you. <laughs> so...
3: And this, this became and Diamonds would. and Rust and all sorts of other...
1: Exactly.
0: Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you you were visited by a mysterious hooded figure at one point.
1: I uh, was a um, couple of years ago. I was uh, on my way back from the UK to the US and I had a new assistant who had started about a week before and was kind of thrown in at the deep end because my other assistance. Um, Holiday had happened as well. So she was off on, I think she was in Venice or somewhere. So Stephanie was all on her own there, standing out in the drive, uh, trying to find the number of the septic tank people so she could get the septic (laughs) tank uh, pumped. And a large white van drew up and a window came down and Stephanie walked over holding her Telephone as she was, and a hooded figure in the back said, No photographs. <laughs> and she said, That's fine. And he said, Do you know who I am? And she said, Yes. And he said, Can I have a look around? And she did that thing of going, well, I can't actually contact Neil. What would he say? And she correctly went, he would say yes, of course. Please come in. <laughs> and uh so Bob got to walk around the house, and she got to walk around with him, and he would say gnomic and Bob-like things. <laughs> you know, go up to one room, which is actually now it's become, uh, it wasn't then because he wasn't born then, but but now it's my son's bedroom. And uh, he said a lot of music was made in this room. Walked to the next room and he wanted to see the fireplace. He wanted to see the kitchen because there was a photograph of Sarah taken in that kitchen that he had loved and wanted to see what we'd done with it. And And the house, we really haven't changed very much. We've kept pretty much everything as it was and in fact um i went through a period when we first moved into the house where i found all of the objects that i could from the bring it all back home cover like the sort of the indonesian puppet over on the left and the painting of a mysterious man the portrait did you ever find out who that was because i saw you tweeted at one point never found out no nobody knows Um, I did, but nobody ever knew. It's interesting because on the cover of Bring It All Back Home, because you've got that weird blur Mm -hmm. around, you you can't really see everything. Mm -hmm. However, because we have the entire photo shoot, um, you can go onto the internet and find all of the other shots that were taken of Sally and Bob sitting in the same place. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can absolutely see everything on that uh, mantelpiece so I actually identified everything. You know, here's the Lord Buckley record. Here's, and and I put them all there. And I found even found the correct candlesticks. And I put them on. And that lasted about six months. And then my wife pointed out to me that we were not living in a fucking Bob Dylan museum. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, things started appearing yeah. and things started moving around. And I I went, what do I think about this? And I thought, I, I feel fine about it. Yeah. But it is, I, I actually got in touch with the photographer who took not the the bring it all back home ones but that life spread that never happened uh with bob and ginsburg and everybody i don't know tell, tell was me it daniel about kramer that. was it was was, no. was was it yeah. daniel kramer who did this life spread he did it. well he he was meant to do a feature on bob for life and he took all the photos and followed bob around um and then life decided that uh, they didn't want somebody so scruffy as Bob setting a bad example in their pages, so none of the photos were seen. Heaven for many Good old years. Life magazine.
3: Yeah. Have you found since you? I mean, before you moved into the house, what did Dylan's music mean to you? Has it taken on a different I, meaning? Or? It's
1: definitely taken on a different meaning, and I've always, I've always liked Bob and never loved him, mm. and uh, you know, liked him. Ever since I was a 12-year-old on a French exchange living in Paris and the album that they had was The Best of Bob Dylan, Mm -hmm. one of those early ones, and I would play it and go, I love these and this is amazing. And then going back and discovering Bowie's song, Song for Bob Dylan on Hunky Dory. Now hear this Robert Zimmerman, I wrote a song for you. But also feeling very much like he was part of the music at the time of an older generation he was not my music i remember some friends who were older than i was being incredibly excited when blood on the tracks came out Mm. and having a listening party and i Came along, and I would have been, what, 15? What year was it? 75. So I probably would have been 14 going on 15. Yeah. And just going, this is not my music. Mm. And appreciating that it was great, but having no wish ever to hear it again. Yeah. If you know, there was a sort of a thing with Bob. And I would buy dylan music love his phrasing love the songs and then they would not go on to playlists yeah they just so it was it was very much a sort of a thing of he is you know he's not my just that thing of your generation earlier and mm-hmm. and the truth is it's not really true i mean lou reed was as iconic for me as bob is for most people and mm-hmm. And he was Lou and he was an older generation stuff. And mm. I just came to him kind of late, but it was but somehow he worked for me. But definitely coming to coming to the house and feeling very haunted by Dylan and haunted by Dylan's stories. And the fact that, you know, Bob could show up out of the blue and wander around and I, he gave me a beautiful gift, by the way, which is so sweet. Um, because I think he he'd noticed that I had some of the photographs i have the photograph of him watching the dean martin show right and at the time i had it up we've actually built a little bookcase there now so it's no longer there but it was in exactly the place where he is sitting Mm. in a house and you're going well actually this was also he was there before the grossmans had their furniture in Mm -hmm. you know that this is a little black and white tv set sitting on a windowsill and he's in a rocking chair so you're This is kind of what they had in that space at that time. And and he sent me a beautiful blow-up of one of those photos I've never seen anywhere else of him and Sarah and someone else watching a Super 8 film, in a film being projected in our really old kitchen. And the old kitchen is not a real kitchen. The old kitchen is because I said this was a faux Dutch farmhouse Mm They built one room which is has very little in the way of electricity and is just bricks and floor and candles and an enormous fireplace. And actually, I I've read interviews with the photographer who took the photograph that is used on the cover and mm-hmm. bring it all back home. And I realized that in that way that memory plays tricks on us, when he talks he conflates the two kitchens and the two fire two fireplaces because he talks about you know he talks about this strange old room with this very old huge fireplace and then talks about the photograph of bob and sally as if he took it there and of course Mm. he didn't he Mm. took that in
0: so bob sent you this gift of a photo was that after he after walked around there. your
1: yep it, it turned up mysteriously about a month later oh, that's great how old, do you know how long he was there walking around he was there i believe 10 or 15 minutes he turned up and did a one of these these bob walking through
0: <laughs> one things. of the neil young bruce springsteen albert grossman uh,
1: but weirdly of course he knew that house well, like he, he no know he knew head, that house intimately ins, this was out, yeah. this was his house in this was where he had lived sixty three, sixty four before he bought his house in woodstock mm. um and there are a lot of photos that are labeled bob in his house in woodstock which are actually in my house the ones of him wandering around with Allen ginsburg there's him in the kitchen playing the harmonium um there's a bunch of these photos which are actually the impression given was Mm. this is bob's house Mm. but actually Mm. it was my place or my place it was the grossman place yeah were you ever moved to see him live i would have loved to have seen him live if um if i'd ever been in the place and was never moved to go and see him i you know it wasn't until i became interested in dylan i realized he'd basically been on tour solidly for years and it would have been very Mm. easy to go and see him and i'm a friend of jesse's Mm. you know jesse dylan his son and i became friends in about 1998 and have stayed friends so i'm sure i could have called jesse at any point and said Mm. can you get me into this gig um but i never did you, you may be better off because you, you just never know what you're Well, that's, get. that's you know, having, having read about it, Bob was very thrilled to see there were books on Bob Dylan in my sitting room when he walked in. He said, ah. <laughs> 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 um, I, you know, having read about it, I, it was one of the things that I learned was you never know what you're going to get and you may get one of the gigs and you may get one of the other gigs mm-hmm. and yeah. you never know and it's okay. How did, what does Jesse do? How do you... Jesse's a film director. Jesse Dylan is a film director. And I met Jesse at the time I met Jesse. He was one of the top directors of commercials. And uh, he'd wanted to get into directing movies. And for a period of 25 minutes in 1998, 99, the jim henson company in association with denise denovi who was tim burton's producer and uh jesse dillon were going to do a movie of neverwhere my novel Mm. and um and it never happened and jesse in one of those sort of hollywood maneuverings found himself cast out from the project and which always made me sad because I, I loved jesse and then since then we bump into each other to the point where we enjoy bumping into it knowing that we will always bump into each other it's like meeting you know bumping uh, sitting next to each other on a plane and it's like mm. oh my god jesse mm. um and the last time i saw jesse he invited me out for dinner with him and elvis costello <laughs> and i said no And I said no for the same reason that I'm very happy never to have met uh, Dylan and for the same reason that I actually worked relatively hard to avoid meeting uh, David Bowie, especially when he was still alive and living primarily in Woodstock, fairly close to me, Mm. which is I have very few heroes left that I have not met. Very few larger-than-life, iconic people that i haven't met you know i met and had dinner with lou reed and kind of wished afterwards that i hadn't because i think i would have preferred the lou in my head to the one that i had dinner with he wasn't a bad person he didn't do anything bad but having dinner with lou there was a point where i had to come and sit next to him and he kind of interrogated me about comics because he was thinking about doing a graphic novel and he wanted my opinion on stuff. Mm. And I had a sort of comics exam from Lou Mm. on subjects as diverse as EC Comics and so on and so forth. And by the end of the exam, I was informed that I had passed. And now I was allowed to have this conversation (laughs) with him. And I'm going, ah, but now I don't want to. <laughs> I, you know, it was, yeah. I, so it was one of those things where I'm, I, you know, I, last time I saw Jesse, it was like, no, I, I don't want to have dinner with Elvis Costello, even though I am sure I would love him. I've never heard anything, anybody say a bad word about him. Like Dylan, like Lou, he is one of the lyricists who made me. And, no, please have a great dinner.
0: Speaking of projects and and uh, your various projects that have come to fruition, so um, in American Gods, well, in American Gods, the novel you mention, Hard
1: Rain, I do. Which is, I felt it's interesting. I fell in love with the song Hard Rain again, you know, it's that weird way that you come to Dylan. Dylan is always more omnipresent than you believe. And you come to him in odd ways. Mm. And even as you know, as an adult, discovering that that the Mighty Quinn song I'd loved when I saw it on Cracker Jack as a kid turned out to be a Bob Dylan song. Um and uh I'd fallen in love with Hard Rain through Brian Ferry's cover. You know, These Foolish Things was just one of my favorite albums when it came out continued to be one of my favorite albums still is I think probably one of my favorite albums and there was something about hard rain that has worked itself into a lot of stuff I've written and I tried to make sure that in American Gods you would get a lot of the things that are referred to in <laughs> Hard Rain. Just as the, you know, the imagery that crops up all the way through it, that I would have things that would refer to that, and in order to actually alert readers to the fact that that was might happen, or at least if they spotted that happening, they were not mad. Yeah. Um, I actually, they they get to watch, they get to listen to Hard Rain while they're driving. And I was thrilled when that actually made it into American Gods, the TV series. So it was the yeah. last thing I expected.
0: Because <laughs> I was watching the TV series the other day, just the, just the first episode, and I, I saw Misty Mountains, Crooked Highways, Sad Forests, <laughs> Dead Oceans, <laughs> Mouth of a Graveyard.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, They're yeah. all there. It's no, like it, a giant Bob Dylan song. It is. Um, because, again, it's that thing of, okay, I'm going to write a road trip. And I'm going to write a road trip. Chapter three, the... the uh, part three of American Gods is called uh, this moment of the storm. Mm-hmm. And it's a storm is coming um, is the the iconic phrase that we're heading into. And of course, it's a hard rain's going to fall is, is another way of saying that.
3: Do you ever go to these songs now and sort of try and make sense of the world? I mean, it's interesting you mentioned hard rain's going to fall because a couple of our podcast guests have said that that's a song that seems to take on a renewed
1: resonance every so often and politically little phrases will jump out. I think all you need is to be in an Armageddon state of mind and it is sad that our leaders tend to put us in an Armageddon state of mind and it throws a small number of pieces of artwork up as they sort of bubble back to the surface and feel more relevant and hard rain is absolutely one of those and it sits for me like you know it, it sits for me like the Yeats poem uh turning and turning in the widening jar that point where you're going okay you know the best the best lack all conviction while the worst are filled with passionate intensity mm. and i'm going oh that's now mm. that's the thing yeah. i know what that looks like so I think we're in an apocalyptic state of mind mm-hmm. and I think anything that feels apocalyptic feels right. It's the same with, uh, you know, the the original Watchmen's use of All Along the Watchtower.
3: Yes, Dory Linsky was on this podcast and he mentioned that as well,
1: yeah. And, uh, you know, Watchmen was, looking back on it, I think it was an awful lot of things And, um, but one of the biggest things that it was, was a giant Rorschach block for an apocalyptic state of mind Mm. for all of us feeling that the doomsday clock was just ticking. You know, we could watch that minute hand and it was just ticking a little bit closer to midnight. Mm. I'd been, you know, I remember in 1984, just having a long conversation long serious conversation with my my wife to be about nuclear war would there be one would we survive you know we were having kids and were they get go- what kind of world were they going to grow up into and was it what were we doing and and the idea of that conversation by 1996 would have been ridiculous yeah but it was very present in the mid 80s wasn't it absolutely yeah
3: and, and now I just should say, for context, it's the day after the twenty nineteen general election, and uh, apocalyptic Bob Dylan sounds pretty
1: good at the moment. Apocalyptic I have to say. Bob Dylan sounds utterly appropriate. You yeah. know, you could you could sit here putting your apocalyptic Bob Dylan playlist together, mm. and everything would feel very very relevant. Yeah, I listened to "Standing in the Doorway" this morning in my kitchen and
3: <laughs> got too miserable for words. But it works. I'm thinking about your house and
0: where you live and. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to picture the summer feeling. That There's pictures of Dylan, you know, swinging in that that tire, you know, mm-hmm. and
1: I'm wondering what summer's like in
0: Bearsville.
1: Summer in Be- Well, you're on a mountainside. The reason why people from New York would go to the Catskills, and we're at the beginning of the Catskills, would go into the mountains, is mm-hmm. it's cooler. It's beautiful. My place had a swimming pool. So Bob and all of the the people that they would collect around them and you know albert was managing peter paul and mary but you had the janice janice he, he managed janice mm. um you had people like jimmy hendrix around you had mm. all of these people and because my place was the place with the swimming pool that was where they would go which really apparently irritated albert because i was told by a former assistant of his that one day sick and tired of having Pop stars show up and lie all over his ground. He had a truck filled with firewood logs back up to the pool <laughs> and uh, he emptied it in, had some lilies put down, and announced it was now a lily pond. And uh, nobody was able to swim there until after he died, when Sally, <laughs> who had not been living there for a while, moved back in and took out all the logs and turned it back into a pool. So, uh, but Albert, I mean, Albert fascinates me in the sense of, you know, his presence is always there. Dylan, you wind up with these stories. For example, the place where Bob would have slept in that mezzanine, which is now my wife's office and creating space and where she has her piano, is the place where Bob had sold Albert or, or traded Albert and Andy Warhol. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, he gave him the Andy Warhol picture of Elvis mm. with the gun, which Andy had given Bob. Bob had strapped to the top of his car, driven back to New York, and Bob really didn't want a giant picture of Elvis. He thought it was kind of tacky. Um, but he really wanted a three-piece leather sofa, leather armchair, and leather hassock so he did a trade with albert for the um for the warhol and one of the things i love about that is the guy who told me the story ian was working at the time for albert and one of the things that i learned when i moved in is every time it rained heavily out there the floor would flood so they had a couple of milk crates and every time it rained, because this was quite heavy, Ian would have to run up to, uh, up to the house and they would lift this enormous Warhol onto the milk crate. And occasionally they didn't get to it in time, so it has water staining at the very bottom. And um, some years later, when Albert died, one of the things that Albert had been creating in the years before he died was in Bearsville. He'd put in a uh, a restaurant, a couple of restaurants, a Chinese restaurant and another little restaurant, the Bear Cafe. He'd also um was building the Bearsville Theatre, this big beautiful theater. Mm-hmm. And after his death they ran out of money. And Sally sold the Warhol. And I believe the Warhol sold At the time, um, so late '80s, Mm. it sold for over eight hundred thousand dollars. And the next time it sold, because you can keep track of the provenance of this, because it has water damage at the bottom and all Mm, sorts of things, mm, and it's mm. it's the Dylan one. Um, It sold for eleven million. And I believe the next time it sold, it sold for thirty million. And I love to think of this thirty million (laughs) dollar painting uh, raised up on milk crates. Yeah in my in my barn every time it rains all, <laughs> all the, all the three-piece sweets, yeah.
0: <laughs> the 10 trillion three-piece sweets yes
1: all of the three-piece sweets in the world are you uh, are you still in touch with sally grossman i am uh she's great i, I see sally uh, not as much as i ought to but i haven't been home as much as i ought to i've been off for the last couple of years making good omens which has kept me mostly in the uk mm-hmm. more recently i've been over here being a dad while my wife amanda has been touring the uk and and europe so i've been just based over here so mm. I, I get back in the spring and i'm looking forward to seeing her
0: so you'll be based in woodstock again for for the foreseeable future
1: for a while yeah i mean yeah it's still it's it's it, it gets to be the base it, it's become the place that i'm looking forward to going back to you know it's it's woodland it's incredibly quiet there it's a fabulous place to think and to write and it's haunted by the ghost of the still-living Bob Dylan. What more would you want?
0: <laughs> is It Rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded in the Mortimer Snurd suite at LipSync Studios. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith
3: and produced by Robin Guise. We're on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. Music is by Sam Hare.
0: All your seasick sailors, they are rolling home. All your reindeer armies are all going home. The lover who just walked out your door has taken all his blankets from the floor. The carpet, too, is moving under you. And it's all over now, baby blue.
4: Splash, splash, splash. Splash Weather Repel Premium Windshield Wash features a three-in-one formula that repels rain, sleet, snow, and bugs while leaving a streak-free shine. And its advanced beading technology keeps you seeing
2: safely all year long.
4: See safely on the road when you apply a little splash.
2: Pick some up at Walmart today. 8 billion miles driven by Leaf owners globally since 2010. Are you not yet available for purchase? Expected availability late fall. Subject to change.
4: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.